Welcome, as we take a break from our First Peter sermon series, Through the Fire. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live-streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Pastor David King will be preaching a sermon called Forgiveness and Patience. Good morning and welcome, I'm echoing a little, welcome to our Father's house. Wherever his children gather to worship, that's our Father's house. Uh, I hope you're praying for Bruce and his family, and uh, especially on Tuesday when the funeral occurs. 102 years old. Uh, Someone said to me before the service, he got all the toothpaste out of the tube. And uh, I thought that was an ironic way of putting it, but entirely appropriate. You may notice up on the screen a quote from Thomas Manton, an old 17th century Puritan, who uh, said, It is the duty of the child of God to be patient under their afflictions, whether they be long or short. Uh, that is a biblical statement. I believe that Thomas Manton uh, spoke for God when he spoke those words. Uh, This morning I want to talk about patience a bit, and I suspect some of you are saying, well, aren't there more important things to talk about? Uh, Shouldn't we talk about faith? Maybe we could talk about, uh, oh, I don't know, grace, uh, the cross. Uh, By the way, all those come into the story of patience, but I submit to you that as far as God is concerned, patience is one of the most important qualities a believer can have. And uh, that's uh, demonstrated in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, where among the nine characteristics, patience is mentioned. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, Let me illustrate something. Uh, During World War II, the two most uh, well-known voices on British radio were, help me here, did I hear someone say Winston Churchill? And what was the other one? I'm sorry, I had trouble hearing. Okay, Uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, Those two, uh, Winston Churchill and C.S. Lewis, were the best-known voices on British radio. And... uh, A book came out of Lewis's informal radio chats. It's difficult for us to understand them as informal because they are done so well. And Lewis, even in informality, was a brilliant speaker and writer. A book, Mere Christianity, was the result. And I want you to listen to what Lewis has to say about forgiveness. Now, you say, I thought you were talking about patience. Well, it applies as well, so listen carefully. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive, as we had during the war. Now, I pause for a moment and say, everyone says patience is a lovely idea until there's an occasion to be patient. Same principle. Uh, And then 
To mention the subject of forgiveness at all is to be greeted with howls of anger. It is not that people think this is too high and difficult a virtue. It is that they think it is hateful and contemptible. That sort of talk makes them sick, they say. And half of you want to ask me, I wonder how you'd feel about forgiving the Gestapo if you were a Pole or a Jew. So do I, writes Lewis. I wonder very much. Just as when Christianity tells me I must not deny my religion even to save myself from death by torture, I wonder very much what I should do when it came to the point. I am not trying to tell you in this book what I could do. I can do precious little. I am telling you what Christianity is. I did not invent it, and there, right in the middle of it, I find, forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. End quote. Close quote. Uh, forgiveness, you see, is not an option in the Christian life, and neither is patience. Patience is not an option, and today as we think about patience, I ask you to reflect on the people with whom you are impatient. And it's people we are thinking about, because there's a word for patience that applies to things, and there's a word for patience that applies to people, and this is the word that applies to people as we walk through the New Testament. There's a great risk in impatience. Uh, I want to illustrate that from Scripture. Uh, there was a day during the reign of King Saul, Israel's first monarch, when things were hot and heavy on the battlefield against the Philistines. You can read about this in 1 Samuel. Uh, though heavily outnumbered, Saul was uh, ready to go into battle, but the prophet Samuel wasn't there to present the offering that preceded battle. And the troops were fading away. Uh, the attitude of the soldiers that remained was getting bad. Uh, he was afraid he was going to lose his entire army. And so he saw, quite against the rules, offered sacrifice himself. And just then, at that moment, Samuel, God's spokesman, arrived. Now listen to Samuel's words in 1 Samuel 13 and uh, reflect on this. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. The Davidic kingdom never would have happened if Saul had not been impatient. Verse 14 goes on to say, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, that would be David, and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, this is one illustration of the danger of impatience. Uh, this morning, driving out here uh, from our home in Corcoran, which is a long ways away, uh, cars kept passing us and cutting in and they were impatient, and I have to believe that many accidents on the highway occur because people are impatient. And what was humorous is they would cut in front of us and then break suddenly because the car ahead was going slow. And you, of course, have experienced this and have seen it as well. Uh, impatience can kill. Uh, well, this is one picture of the cost of impatience. And a question for you and me this morning is, whom are you impatient with?
Think about it. Think about it. Whom are you impatient with? In Galatians 5, Paul draws a contrast between the works of the flesh and uh, in, in verses 19 to 21, 15 one-word illustrations of evil and nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, neither of these are exhaustive. There's a lot more to evil than 15 one-word characteristics. There's a lot more to the fruit of the Spirit than the nine words, uh, which we call the, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the, listen to them. Uh, the, the fruit, the harvest, the blossoming of the Holy Spirit in our life can be seen by, what's the first one? Love. And in every list of virtues in the New Testament, love is the first. It's the beginning point. Love, joy, peace, patience. It's right there. One of the attributes in the Christian life that occurs because of the Holy Spirit's action in our lives. Um, goes on to add kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Now, there's two caveats here, two things I want to mention. First, you can't have one without the others. In other words, you can't consider yourself a loving person if you're not also a patient person. You can't consider yourself a joyful person unless you're also a patient person, and so on, all the way through the list. Uh, the word fruit is in the singular, and then there are nine characteristics. One fruit, nine facets of a single gem, and they belong together, and they cannot, must not, should not be separated. Uh, this is the outcome the natural harvest of a life controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're being told here. Uh, you see, after giving us a catalog of evil, Paul gives us a catalog of grace. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is the result of a healthy, rooted state that comes from living in Christ. You read John 15 this morning, talked about the vine and the branches. And if the branches are not hooked to the vine receiving the life-giving sap that the vine provides from its rootage, the vine dies. The branches die. The rootage must provide nourishment. Uh, read Psalm 1 this afternoon before you eat your lunch. It's very short, and it reminds us again of trees nourished by the water. Uh, this is needed. It's the natural product of every believer filled by the Spirit. And we are called, Ephesians 4.2 says, to be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. This is the kind of neighbor we're called to be. How do you get along with your neighbors? I used to have a friend. He lived on a piece of land, uh, maybe five, ten acres. I'm not sure the size. And he had managed, there were like five or six different homes that their property touched on his. They were his neighbors. And he managed to alienate all of them. He's a Christian, claims to be a believer, but for various reasons, uh, one of them had branches that were leaning over the fence onto his property, and he wanted them to cut them down, and they wouldn't do it, and they had a fight about it, and so on. So every single neighbor, there was an alienation. And uh, I appreciate, uh, what do you call it, uh, America's Night Out in, in August, which we didn't have but are supposed to have in October. 
uh, to bring neighbors together. That worked a revolution in our neighborhood. It encouraged us to connect with others. We have it at our home, and uh, we provide food, and we encourage them to bring food. How that'll work in October, I'm not at all sure at this point, and we'll see as the weeks pass. But how do you get along with your neighbors? And, and let's be very specific. Are you impatient with the guy next door? Are you impatient with his dog, his child? Uh, how about your spouse? Are, are you short-tempered with your spouse? Uh, all of us would have to admit that happens from time to time. Uh, what about your parents? How do you get along with your parents? How do you treat them? Is there respect? And what about your children? Everyone says, oh, we don't have favorites. We don't play favorites with our children. But the fact of the matter is there are some kids we get along with better than others. And uh, I know that. We had four. A uh, couple of them were easy to get along with. A couple were more difficult to get along with. Uh, I'm not sure, Marie, my wife, uh, they were more like, you know, they must have been your side of the family, the ones I had trouble getting along with. That's a joke. That's a joke, okay? It's a joke. I'll pay for it later. Uh, and, and what about your employees or your employers? Uh, and if you're a student, how about profs? My son-in-law is a pastor in Phoenix, and he's just had to fire his secretary and a custodian, husband and wife, because they refused to listen to the administrator uh, when he told them there were things they needed to do, and they insisted to do it their own way. And when he gave them instructions, they would just roll their eyes like, you're stupid, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, that's foolish in an employment setting. Uh, so there are so many ways in which we can be disrespectful and impatient with other people. So being a good neighbor, friend, spouse, student, child, parent, involves love, joy, peace, and patience. The word patience is macrothumia in the Greek. Uh, macros means long or big. Thumia means temper. And so the meaning of the word is to be long-tempered. And as I said earlier, this particular word for patience refers to being patient with people, not things. Uh, I'm not suggesting it's okay to be impatient with your bulky lawnmower, but that's not quite as serious as being impatient with people. And by the way, an entirely different word for patience is used in the book of Revelation uh, with an entirely different purpose, which we're not even going to touch on today. Do, do you remember 1 Corinthians 13, that great love chapter, 15 characteristics of love? Do you remember the first characteristic? Love is what? Patient. Starts with patience. Uh, this is the opposite of being short-tempered. And if you consider the context of 1 Corinthians, you'll discover that uh, there were a lot of difficult people in Corinth. I've often characterized the book of Corinth, or the church at Corinth, as being the most highly gifted church that we're told about in the New Testament, but also the most highly dysfunctional church in the New Testament. Uh, read the two, two books, and I think you'll understand why I'm saying that. Um, but to be patient means having the power to avenge and not to do it. And when you think of the phrase, love is patient, think of God is patient in me. Think of it that way. 
God wants us to deal with others as he has dealt with us. Paul counseled Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul had written, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I, I do believe that humility and patience go together. I believe that wisdom and patience go together. Paul goes on in 1 Timothy to say, but for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Do you see, God wants to display his immense patience in his children as an example to others. We are called to communicate the character of God to the people we rub shoulders with day by day. How are you doing? How are you doing? God's patience is an expression of his love because this is what God is like. I want to take you to a little Old Testament book and give you an illustration of this. It's the book of Jonah. If you have Bibles, you might want to go to the book of Jonah. Only 44 verses in this book. And uh, in that book, we see God's patience with Jonah and with Nineveh. I think it is startling that many times when we look at characters in the Bible or books in the Bible or stories in the Bible, we focus on the individuals, the human individuals, and we miss the fact that the Bible is all about God. Over 16,000 references to God in the entire thousand pages of the Bible. Over 16,000 references to God. And the most that's said about any one human being is about a thousand. One person has a thousand references to his name in the Bible. But other than that, it's tiny. Abraham, 300, and so on. No, the Bible's about God. And it is important in reading Jonah that we not get hung up on the fish. But let's keep in mind uh, that, uh, that God is the principal character in the book. Look at God at work in patience. Notice how God instructed Jonah to begin in chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Think about this. Jonah is given an opportunity to have a great spiritual adventure with God. God, out of the blue, came to Jonah and said, I want you to hike 500 miles to Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has come up against me. Nineveh was given a chance. Sodom and Gomorrah was given no chance. But, but Nineveh was given a chance by God. And what did he do? He ran away from God, and he headed for Tarshish. We call him the reluctant prophet. He was supposed to go east. He went west. <sighs> what instructions has God given you? What, what does he expect from you? And what are you doing about it? Uh, what has fascinated me, and I had not thought about this before, was that uh, 
God called Jonah to do something, and Jonah didn't do it. And even in not doing it, it changed the trajectory of his life. In other words, whether you are obedient to God or disobedient, your life will change. His life changed. Who else has floated around in a big fish? Uh, because he disobeyed. So think about the fact that you don't want to go to the effort of making the changes God wants, but if you don't, there will still be changes made. Jonah did not want to be a good neighbor to the people of Nineveh, but God was patient, and as Jonah sailed away, God interdicts Jonah. Look at verse 4. Then God sent a great wind, uh, literally a gale, on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Here, the master of wind and wave um, takes the initiative again. And this causes me to think about the fact that God often sends storms into our lives to get our attention. Think about COVID. Think about all the changes that have occurred in recent months, six, seven. Uh, life is not the same today. Uh, in many ways, I see this as a storm coming into our lives, and we have an opportunity to respond in a godly way. And how have we responded? Some of us by uh, being complainative, some of us by being helpful, uh, some of us by being mad. Uh, how do we respond to the storms that come into our lives? Well, God sent this great storm, and the ship threatened to break up. And Jonah, after the cargo was hurled overboard, was hurled overboard at his own request. Uh, I think it's important to remember that. Uh, there is no evidence in the text that he was afraid. In fact, he was sleeping while the sailor, he, the landlubber, was sleeping while the sailors, the seafarers, were panicking. And you notice as well that he offers neither prayer nor practical help. He's just taking a nap while all this was going on. In his patience, God abruptly halted Jonah's westward progress, and the storm abated. Even so, death by drowning was inevitable. But remarkably, God was not yet done with Jonah. The, the likelihood of a fish waiting as you were thrown overboard is relatively small. And I should also add, there are no, there are no documented stories of people actually being swallowed by a fish. There are tales that have been told by preachers, but they are not documented. We have no evidence to prove they're true. This is the only one. And, and now we come to the, the patience of God again, as God saves Jonah. This is the third step in, in God's patience. Uh, look at verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, which later Jesus will compare to his time in the grave. The, the purpose of the fish, let's keep something in mind here. This was not punishment. The purpose of the fish was twofold. One, to rescue Jonah, a sort of lifeguard, and secondly, to transport Jonah, sort of a living submarine. 
Now, think about this. He was there to help. It's like way back in Genesis when God put a mark on Cain. He didn't do it as punishment. He did it as protection. It was a safe conduct mark. It was an evidence of the grace of God. Uh, despite everything, the prophet's still alive. And the split-second timing of such deliverance is evidence of divine providence. And despite Jonah's self-will, he has not escaped the presence of God. So for three days and three nights, he marinated in the fish's stomach juices. Uh, I just can't really imagine that. And it wasn't like Geppetto in Pinocchio who was able to start a fire, you know, and cook. And so it didn't work like that. This must not, not have been very pleasant. He's been saved from drowning, but he still has to escape the fish. Uh, in Jonah 2, there's a prayer that he offers while living inside the fish. And we're not going to deal with that today, but the question is, did he mean it? Some of what we read later suggests that he may have been in desperation at that point. Uh, anyway, Jonah ends up back on land. The fish burps him up, and he heads off to Nineveh. God is not finished with Job. In his patience, God continues to direct his prophet. So in chapter 3, once again, God instructs Jonah. Uh, Jonah's offered a new beginning, just like you and me. There are times in life when we go the wrong way, and God says, wait, you can go this way. And we can turn, we can change by God's grace. In chapter 3, we read, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. You see, God is very patient. He was determined to get his word to Nineveh and to use Jonah to get his message there. So Jonah went 500 miles over land. I wonder if he did this out of love for Nineveh. I, I'm not sure. In fact, there's a great deal about Jonah in the end that makes me wonder, or did he just simply succumb to the sovereign power of God? Um, and Nineveh repents, and God did not punish them. What directions concerning your neighbors has God given you? I'm not suggesting neighbors that are 500 miles away, but there may be people in your family that are that far away, or people that you know that need a touch from you. Uh, it would be a mistake to believe there will always be a second chance to obey God's word. Jonah was given a second chance. Not everyone does. Adam and Eve were not given a second chance. They were told what to do. They disobeyed. They were booted from the garden. It is important, however, to realize in the case of Adam and Eve, they showed no sign of repentance, no penitence. And uh, I'm not sure that uh, the prayer of Jonah uh, doesn't show penitence. So keep that in mind as well. You would think the story would end here. But Jonah 4 begins by telling us Jonah was deeply offended and furious at God. He had come to do God's bidding. God forgave the nation. He didn't destroy them. And Jonah was ticked. Think about it. He was so upset, he prayed God would take his life. In all this, he challenges the character of God. He does not want God's grace and mercy and penitence to be shown to Nineveh. 
Listen to God comforting Job in Jonah 4.6. Then the Word of God provided a leafy plant. He's sitting, it's hot, and made it grow up over Jonah to provide shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. He's looking down from a hill on the city, and he's very hot, and suddenly God provides a plant that grows instantly. Jonah was seated in a barren place outside the city in a funk because God had forgiven the city and withheld destruction. You see, Jonah strongly disapproves of sharing the Lord's compassion with the unlovely. I wonder about us. Are there groups of people we think deserve to be destroyed or deserve to be ignored? I wonder, how open are we to praying for people we deeply dislike? This is certainly significant in this time of political turmoil. How much do we pray for the candidates for office? Not just those in office whom we should be praying for, but those who are running for office, even the ones we don't like. And what can God do about it? We had a lady at our home the other day that's got a deeply dysfunctional relationship with her parents. They divorced when she was very young. And uh, she said she doesn't want to talk to them. She doesn't want to see them until she's been able to forgive them. And my prayer is that that enablement will come soon because I don't think God withholds that enablement. I think it is available when we're willing to take it. Um, I would go on to say that Jonah is out of tune with God. Jonah continues to need an attitude adjustment. He was angry at the Ninevites' salvation and joyful at his own. God, you saved me, but I don't want you to save them. He celebrates the mercy born of patience shown to himself. He criticizes the mercy born of patience shown to others. They don't deserve to be saved. I had a lady come to my office one day years ago who said my, her father was near the end, and, and she said, I, I just am praying that that he not be converted because he doesn't deserve to be in heaven. He was such a nasty dad. I don't want him to be saved. And we talked about that, and we prayed about that, and I don't think it made a difference. I was a young 28-year-old pastor at the time, and I'm sure I didn't handle it as well as I could have, but how sad. I think of 2 Peter 3.9, which says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jonah had not yet learned this lesson of God's patience. There's one final thought from Jonah. God still patiently reaches out to Jonah, and God corrects Jonah. And with this, the book ends. And we don't exactly know what became of Jonah after this. Verse 7 of chapter 4, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, a, a weevil actually is what the Greek, Hebrew means, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said it would be better for me to die than to live. 
often wondered why I just didn't get up and go find a different place to sit, but that's another matter. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Or in other words, it's not right. And Jonah said, it is. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Jonah's very upset. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? You see, Jonah thought he was too loving, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. And the book ends. I think the right hand from the left refers to people who uh, are uninstructed and morally naive. I do not think it refers to children. And Nineveh itself was smaller than 120,000, so it must have included the environs around Nineveh as well. But, but here's the point. Jonah cared more about a plant than he did about tens of thousands of people. He cared more about a plant than he did tens of thousands of people. And there are times when we get our priorities messed up just like that. Um, if we are children of the Heavenly Father, His patience must characterize us as well. Uh, finally, let me read this passage in 2 Peter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. You say, I can't be patient. God will make it possible. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is all about through whom he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them, his promises, you may, listen, this is one of the grandest phrases in the whole Bible, you may participate in the divine nature. Participate in the divine nature. What an extraordinary statement, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God means to change us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us need to be changed. And cheerful patience is a holy skill which one only learns from God. If you don't have patience, you don't have love or joy or peace, and you are not participating in the divine nature. I once heard Chuck Swindoll say that God's favorite prayer was, anybody heard this? Help! If you're short of patience, just call out to God. Let's pray. Our Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we commit our lives to you. I pray for people in this room, Lord, who struggle to be patient. Pray for myself for those times when patience is elusive. And I ask, Father, that you would constantly remind us of our resources which are available in the Holy Spirit and which should and must characterize our lives. Make us patient people, Lord, and make us good neighbors. I pray, Father, that we can be a lighthouse for the gospel in whatever neighborhood we're in. And Lord, help us to reach out to our neighbors, particularly the crabby ones, particularly the ones we have a little bit of trouble with. And help us to be loving and kind and forgiving and patient as you were patient. 
Thank you for the price you paid in Jesus. We ask this in the Savior's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're continuing our series in 1 Peter. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including Genesis, Crossroads, Ruth, FaithWorks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.